Hey there, Marcus here. It is my joy and privilege to serve as pastor here at Awaken Church in Juneau, Alaska. I pray that in the next few moments, the, the word of God proclaimed is a blessing to you and is nourishing to your soul. But we believe here at Awaken that one of the ordinary means of God's grace in our life is the gathering of the people of God. We believe that it's in the gathering that, that we're known and that we know one another. That it's in the gathering that, that we are shaped and fashioned into the image of Jesus Christ. And so I want to invite you this Sunday to come and join us. Come and worship with us. But for now, I pray that you're encouraged by this sermon. God bless. Go ahead and uh, grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me back to Mark chapter 10, verse 17. If you're wondering if that's the same text as last week, the answer is yes. This is part two of our, our um, study at the interaction of Jesus and the rich young ruler and then his address to the crowd thereafter. Um, as, we, as you turn there, I want to remind you uh, of an uh, ad campaign that you're probably familiar with. Uh, back in 2008, MasterCard capitalized on reality and they used it to their advantage when they came up with the priceless slogan. You remember the priceless slogan? It started in 08 with a, an adorable toddler uh, who was playing with a cardboard box in the commercial, and as she's playing with this cardboard box, the voiceover said, most popular toy for toddlers, $500. That is not happening in my house ever. Most popular stuffed animal for toddlers, $350. They must have went to Build-A-Bear. And picture book for toddlers, $60. There's a long pause, and then it says, watching her play with the box instead. You all know the tagline priceless. And then afterwards, the truth that they capitalized on was that there's some things that money can't buy. But according to them, for everything else, there's MasterCard. But on the, on the, the truth of that, on the surface level, if, we, if we're just talking about it kind of superficially, we, we would say that we know, we all know that, that the things that matter most in life, money cannot buy them. Money cannot buy true love, uh, it, it can't buy peace. It, it might be able to buy some sort of financial security, but it, it doesn't buy peace deep in our hearts. It, it, it can't buy friendship. It can't buy trust. It, it, it certainly cannot buy just the simple joys of life that, that bring the most satisfaction to us. But, but that's, on a, that's on a surface level. On a deeper level, we understand that money cannot buy you anything of eternal value either. Money, you can't take it with you. There's nothing that you can accumulate in this life that, that you'll be able to carry with you to the life in the life to come. Nor can you, more specifically, purchase your salvation. You cannot buy your salvation. You can't pay for it directly. You can't just write God a check, and you, you can't pay for it indirectly through things that you do, through your charitable giving, through, through giving of alms and, and that sort of thing. But that doesn't mean that people don't try, right? People try all the time. 
There are an entire religious systems in our world designed to, to tell you what the price is, what you must pay, what, what you must give, what you must do in order to acquire eternal life. And, and that's not just in um, forms of religion that use other ancient texts. That, that is true of of um, forms of so-called Christianity as well down through the ages. The, the, the most predominant being the Roman Catholic Church. One of the fathers of, of the Roman Catholic Church wrote and said that there are five ways to be reconciled to God. He, he writes that the first is to condemn sin. The second is the forgiveness of offenses. The third is to pray. The fourth is almsgiving. And the fifth is humility. The sacrament of penance is where the Christian asks for forgiveness for any wrongdoing. It's known as, the, as confession and reconciliation. The Christians can be reconciled to God by stating and reciting the prayer of the act of contrition. There's five ways that you can earn. If you, if you do a combination of these things, that you can somehow earn enough merit or enough favor with God to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven. That, that is foolishness. You cannot, no matter how hard you try, and no matter what text or what verse or what scripture you use to justify it, you cannot earn your salvation. There are, in fact, some things that money cannot buy. Now, last week, we looked together at um, at Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler. And this rich young ruler was inquiring of Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. He, he wants to know what action he must take or what price he must pay, what sacrifice he must purchase in order to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven. So let's look back at that text again this morning in, in Mark ten seventeen. And as he was setting out on his journey... A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. So what we have in our text this morning is this wealthy young ruler ruling in the midst of the people of Israel who is experiencing, in this interaction, he is experiencing the most important moment of the most important day of his whole life. This is the defining moment of this man's life. No matter his past successes and no matter whatever you know, is ahead of him in the future, this is the moment. He's asking the most important question and he's asking it to the only person who can offer eternal life. Now, some things that we need to understand is that he is very misguided in um, his understanding of, of what the answer might be. He is making some assumptions, no doubt, that there is something that he can in fact do to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven. 
He's asking, I, you know, what, what in addition to what I have already done must I do? In addition to my regular um, sacrifices, my, my regular offerings that I purchase and, and bring to the temple, on top of my obedience to the letter of the law, on top of everything that I've done, what else must I do in order to be confident about my, my, my eternal security? In other words, he's really asking what the price is. What's the cost? What's the price? I'm willing to pay it. Another assumption we can make about this young man, just based on who he is, is that he had the, the at least in his mind, he thought that he had the means or the ability to pay whatever the price was. Think about who, who we're dealing with here. He is a self-sufficient person, isn't he? He, he is a wealthy ruler. He's made a name for himself. He's lived his life in such a way that he has been elevated to a status above common folk. He has has gained wealth. He has gained position. He has gained authority. He's gained power. And he didn't do that by sitting at home on his hands, did he? This is a person who, who takes action, who, who says, what do I need to do and, and does it, who, who capitalizes on opportunities as they present themselves. Isn't that what successful people do? Isn't that how they get to where they are? And we all just kind of fumble through life and they, they got it figured out and they, they advance. So we can imagine that he's asking, what must I do? Because he's expecting to be able to do it. Probably because everything he's set his mind to, he's been able to do. Listen to the confidence. All of these I have kept from my youth. That, that's a statement. I have kept the law perfectly from my youth. I'm sure he thought that he had. I, I'm sure he was a, a very disciplined individual. So he's serious about the question. Because he's, he's willing to do whatever Jesus says. At least he thinks he's willing to do whatever Jesus is going to say. Because he was that self-sufficient type of person. He was a wealthy ruler. On top of how he viewed himself, the crowd would have viewed this man as one who is blessed by God. It it, it was common belief among the people of Israel that to be wealthy was to be blessed by God. They viewed poverty as the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. So essentially, if you're poor, you are cursed by God. And if you're wealthy, you're blessed by God to whatever degree your wealth um, is, is accumulated. So he has a very high view of himself, but, but the crowd around him viewed him as the blessed of God. Wealth and religion were interconnected with each other. That's why he's wealthy and he's a ruler uh, in mid, the midst of the people of Israel. His, his success and his religion in their mind were tied together because the wealthy are blessed by God. I want to use this moment. It's not the point of the text, but I think it's a good thing to take a moment to remember that you and I get 
caught in this line of thinking sometimes if we're not careful. Now, I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel where, where we believe the point of what we do is for God to bless us and to give us material possession. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the natural tendency that we often have during times when life is going good to really feel like we are under the blessing of God. For praise to be easy, for coming and gathering with the people of God to be easy, to sing uh, is easy, and life is good and simple and light, and we're loving God. But when things begin to take a turn, and when, as I like to say, when life punches us in the face, when, when things get difficult when, when our job becomes uncertain or we lose it or, or things spin into chaos, all of a sudden, if we're not careful, we can ask a, a question like, God, what did I do for you to remove your blessing from my life? What, what did I do to move outside of your favor? And sometimes we can assume that just because life is challenging at the moment that we have somehow moved outside of the blessing of God. I want to remind you this morning that if you are in Christ Jesus, if you are a son or a daughter of God, there will never be, from the moment you put your trust in Christ, on through eternity, there has never been and there will never be a moment where you are not underneath the grace and the care and the blessing of your heavenly Father. There is not a moment, no matter what life throws your way, that is not directly or indirectly in a way you can't see the blessing and favor of God upon your life. Why? Because you are in Christ Jesus. You belong to him. You are his child. You are 100% underneath his provision, provision and blessing because he is your loving heavenly father. Now I mean that with all my heart and you guys know I am not your prosperity gospel type of person, right? Uh, but let me give you some scriptures. I just want to I want us to understand this and it's so helpful when life takes a turn for us to remember what God is doing. In, in Luke 11:5 through 13, Jesus is talking about prayer. And, and he says um Uh, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. The one who knocks, it'll be open. But then he he puts it this way in verse 11 of of Luke Luke 11. 11, He says, what father among you, you you human fathers, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a scorpion or serpent? If he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you, then, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Give his very presence dwelling inside of you to those who asks. In another context, James 1.17, it says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't forget, don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation of shadow or change. But most important, most helpfully, at least in my opinion, is Romans 8, not just 28, but Romans 8, 28 through 37. Romans 8, 28, many of you know it. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And that is good news. 
That is wonderful news for us to remember that all things, I've told you many times before, what is under the category of all things? Do you know it? All all things. (laughs) It's not just all things. Some things are under all things. All things are under all things. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I I always remember the story uh, of, um, of Joseph. And that incredible narrative of just all kinds of highs and lows in Joseph's life. And it gets to the end where his brothers are before him and they're, they're afraid that he's going to kill him. And he says to them, you meant it for evil. And that, there was a lot of evil towards Joseph, but God meant it for good. But let's read on from 28. We know that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, because for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So every good and bad thing that's happened in your life, it's conforming you to the image of Christ until you are made perfect in eternity. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those who he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also Glorified. That is the golden chain of salvation. That's how one thing leads to the next until we are glorified. What shall we say then? If God is for us, who can be against us? Because he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one that died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Can you just imagine that right now? As you go through the various seasons of life, God the Father and we know also the Holy Spirit, two of the three members of the Trinity are constantly interceding on your behalf with God the Father. Just think about that for a moment. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For it is written, for your sakes we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to slaughter, to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now notice that Romans does not say that because you're in Christ there's There's no persecution, no famine, no nakedness, no danger, no sword. But rather, in those things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us because we are in Christ. For I am sure. Now, this is so important for us to get, for for us to be able to say, I am sure, I am sure, I am confident in this, that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, nor, nor rulers, nor, nor the things present, nor the things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing that you will ever experience that moves you or shows that you are outside of the love of your benevolent Father. That is really, really good news. So we ought to be careful that we don't fall into that 
train of thinking that when life is good, we're under the blessing, and when life is bad, we're not. In all things, he's working them together for good. So that's a little mini sermon. I just wanted to take that opportunity to remind us because we so discourage sometimes, don't we? And, and that's just not a train of thought that honors God and it's not good for us either. So what Jesus is doing with this rich young ruler is exposing his heart. He's exposing his heart. We, this is what we looked at last week together. He, he's asking him the question, do you serve your money and your wealth or do you serve God? Who is your God? Who is your God? He, he's not asking him to do something significant, go and sell all you own and follow me, and, and that's how you purchase it. He, he's exposing this young man's heart. Reminded of, of um, Isaiah 29, 13, where God says for the thousandth time of his people, um, they praise me with their lips, but their mouth, but their, they praise me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. That, that's what's going on in this rich young ruler. He, he, he praises God with his actions, with his words, but at the end of the day, Jesus exposes that his heart is actually far from God. And so that's, that's what just took place. And the, the, the man goes away disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He loved his money and he loved his possessions. And so here's what comes next. In verse 23, let's read on. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Now let's pause there. But why, why, were, why were they amazed at Jesus' words? Because once again, Jesus is saying the opposite of what they believed. Remember what we, what we just said is they believed that how you earn salvation is you, you literally purchase it. Their sacred writings said if you do works of alms, if you give alms, if you are charitable and you make financial sacrifice for the poor and the needy, you literally buy your way into the kingdom of God. And so who, who's capable of doing that the best? The wealthy, those with the resources to make the purchase. It's the wealthy that can buy the, 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 um, the pure sacrifice and bring it to the altar. That can buy above and beyond. That can do charitable acts day after day after day. The rich, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. They're the, the ones that God has already blessed, aren't they? Wouldn't it be easiest for those that are already under God's blessing to enter the kingdom? Aren't they, aren't they the ones that God is already saying, I favor this person, that's why they're, that's why they're wealthy, that's why they're, they have power and influence? And they're, they're shocked at the saying because it is the opposite of what they believe. So you're saying it's actually hard for them? How can that be, is what they're asking. And so what, what does Jesus do? He leads them further down the train of thought. And he says to them again, look back with me at um, verse 24. Um, I'm sorry. Yes, 24. But Jesus said to them, halfway through it, but Jesus said to them, children... How difficult it is 
to enter the kingdom of God. And then he gives an example. It is easier for, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And what happens, verse 26? They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? So a couple things we got to settle. There is not a gate in Jerusalem that has ever been found that was teeny tiny that they used to shove camels through. Okay? Uh, camel is not a misinterpretation. It is extremely unlikely that uh, the translators of the Bible throughout history would, would wrongly translate the word translated camel in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Get it wrong all three times in all three places at separate times. It doesn't mean a rope through an eye of a needle. It doesn't mean that the camel is cut up into parts and shoved through. None of those ridiculous theories that have come up throughout history. It's, it's a very simple saying. It's a, simple, it's a saying that is really cross-cultural, that, that exists in different forms and in different peoples and societies. It, it's harder for a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle. We use a similar phrase, not to say something's impossible, but that it was near impossible. We say that we threaded the needle. You know, I'm talking about when you just barely make it, we say, oh yeah, I, I really threaded the needle there. Or like in sports analogies, it gets used all the time. It just, it just went right through. But we're saying it seemed impossible, but we made it happen. But there's nobody shoving a camel or an elephant or a rope or anything else through the eye of a needle. The, the point is that it's impossible. Well, and how do we know that? Well, because in a second, we're going to hear Jesus say, it's impossible. Okay? So it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. And they are exceedingly astonished by this. And so now let's, let's look at it from a, a little bit of a different angle. They're, they're obviously astonished because they thought that the wealthy could purchase it. But, but why is Jesus now saying that it's actually really hard for the wealthy? What's the, what's the obstacle that is so great that it's impossible for them to enter the kingdom? Why is, essentially, why is Jesus picking on wealthy people? What, what, what's going on in their life? And it, it's a, it, it reminds us that, that um, the Bible is really, really good at weaving together spiritual truth and the way we live our lives as human beings. It, it's almost as if the author of Scripture is also the one who created people, Right? And it, it's so woven together in, in just an um, incredible way. And oftentimes we, um, we separate the, theology from life. And we, we separate spiritual conversations from the way that life actually happens. And, and it's really easy to compartmentalize those, but the Bible never does that. The Bible always weaves truth, weaves theology into the midst of human experience because it's applicable to life. And, and so what we have in this situation is Jesus taking a spiritual truth. It is hard to enter the kingdom. That's what he said. It's hard for enter, enter the kingdom. In fact, for a rich person, it's easier to shove a camel through a needle than it is to enter. Well, what is it about the wealthy person's experience of being wealthy that makes it so difficult for them in, in their experience to enter the kingdom. What, what, what prohibits them? What's the roadblock? Well, it's what we've already said. It's that self-sufficiency. 
See, wealthy people have a unique danger in being able to create around them a, um, a false sense of security, don't they? You know, if, if, the, if things go bad, if the um, economy takes a turn, well, they just invest differently and they profit, right? They, they, they feel like, well, I've, I've figured out the system. I'm safe. I'm, I'm, I'm in a good place. I'm really not, I'm untouchable. And what that causes them to do just in reality is to really never feel a sense of need of anything, let alone the need of a savior. In fact, extremely wealthy people often view themselves as the savior. Look at what the um, Gates Foundation is, is doing lately. They, they just are on a crusade to be the savior of the world, just one problem to the next. Um. It's dangerous because they don't experience any um, need, at least surface level need in the moment, necessarily. Not in every case, but that is the, the danger of wealth, the danger of riches. That's what makes it such a challenge. Their, their self-sufficiency. The maybe another way to look at it is just the frame of mind that they have to have had to get to that point, right? I'll take care of myself, that kind of attitude. We call them self-made, right? They're self-made people. So what we have here is a spiritual truth, eternity with God, combined with the situation of a human being finding themselves in love with their wealth. And that's an impossible situation. So, Now we get to the heart of the text. I'll just uh, let you in a little secret. It's not really a secret. It's right there for us to see. The point of the text is not, it is hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom. The rich person is not the point of the text. They're not the main idea here. They're just getting kind of pointed out to get to the main point. So what is the main point? The, the disciples say, well, then who can be saved? So understand their frame of mind. The wealthy are the ones that should have the easiest time. And if it's impossible for them, what hope is there for us? You, know, you, you catching that? So if the common folk can't do the alms and buy the sacrifices and do all of that like the rich can, and it's hard for the rich, it, it must be absolutely impossible for common fishermen and, and folk like us. How can anyone be saved? Then who can be saved? Verse 27. Here is the glorious news. Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Who then can be saved? Well, by human effort, it's impossible. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't do it. You can't be obedient enough. It is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. It, it is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 being expressed by Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the free gift of God. It it's can't be purchased. It's a gift 
given by God. It's not a result of works. Do you remember why? So that no one may boast. So that God gets all the glory. We, we don't get to share glory with God. We don't get to earn it. We don't get to buy it. We don't get to beat our chest and say, look what I've done. I've built a kingdom on earth and I've, and I've been able to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven, into eternity. It is impossible for a human being to save themselves. That's the point. That's what Jesus is getting at. Rich or poor or somewhere in between, you can't save yourself. You need a savior. You need a savior. That is exactly who Jesus is. That's exactly what he came to do. In fact, I believe, I, I don't have this in my notes. I believe this is the first time that Jesus has really been able to say it that clearly. He's alluded to it other ways, but to, to, to say you cannot, it is impossible for you to be saved. It's incredible to hear that coming from the lips of Jesus, especially because he is so close to his time on the cross. Peter recognizes now that they have done, the 12 have done what the rich man could not do. Jesus said to the rich man, give up all that you have, sell it, give it to the poor, follow me. Look with me at um, 28. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. That is what they did, right? When we look back at the call of the disciples, they left their nets and followed him. It doesn't just mean that they, they were out fishing, hanging out. They, they left their livelihood. They, they left their business. They left their fathers. They left their families. They left their life behind and they followed him. Peter said, okay, so the rich man was unwilling to do it, but we did it. So what's in it for us? Gotta love Peter. He's always just right to the point. Okay, we did what he couldn't do. What's in it for us? That's what he's asking. See, we have left everything and followed you. And here's what I love. I, I am, it's just so incredible. Jesus doesn't go, Peter, are you kidding me? Close your mouth. Why is it always about you, Peter? You know, why, why are you always putting your foot in your mouth? Why are you always saying things without a filter? Why, Peter, just, be, he doesn't do that. You know, what, you know what Jesus does? He answers the question. And it is wonderful news. It is wonderful news. Here's what he says. Look at it. I just, I love this. 29, Jesus said, truly I say to you, truly, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. What is that? That, that is, Jesus, that's a lot right there in those verses. Well, what's Jesus saying? Well, well first of all, let's, let's take it in two parts. First of all, notice that Jesus is not saying, if you follow me, there's no cost associated. There is a cost in following after Christ, and we have to recognize that as Christians. 
He says, no one who loses houses, fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, you know, it, it, there is a cost associated with following Christ. In fact, we understand that, that to be in Christ means we have to die to our former selves to live to Christ. Jesus made it clear that, that he, he came to separate uh, families because of the gospel. It, it does divide. There is a cost involved. It, it may very well cost you your job to be a Christian. It, it may very well cost you relationships and friendships and, and relationships with family. It, it certainly costs Christians in other cultures, particularly Middle Eastern cultures right now. Muslim, predominantly Muslim cultures. To become a Christian is you just assume that you're signing your own death. But even in our culture, we, we're finding increasing hostility towards this. So if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to be as public as you should be about your faith. It's costly. But here's what's so incredible. The benefit in this life and in the one to come so far outweighs the cost that they are incomparable. So what do we gain in this life? What, what's Jesus saying? What does it mean that we will gain more fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, houses and farms than we ever lost. Here's how we can think about this. Right now, think in your mind how many biological uh, mothers and fathers you have. How many brothers and sisters? Now look around you. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Along with every church in our city and those that were here in first service and Christians around the world and Christians that have died already and the Christians that haven't even been born yet. You have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of brothers and sisters in Christ that will be your brothers and sisters forever. Your biological relationships to your families are temporary. Your spouse is more your brother or sister in Christ than they are your spouse. Your union with them is temporary. It's only for this life, but for eternity, you will be brother and sister in Christ. It's an incredible thing to think about. When you come into the family of God, your family increases astronomically. And that has very, again, very practical implications. There should not be a Christian anywhere that loses everything because of their faith that is not far more cared for than they ever were before entering into the family of God. Isn't that what we see through the book of Acts? We see the church in one area sending support and sending resources to another church so, so they can be supported them sending money to Paul and all of that. Isn't that what we see? Isn't that what Philippians 2 tells us to do? Consider others of more importance than yourself. Don't look to your own needs, but to the needs of those around you. That, that is a benefit of belonging to the family of God. That's what this church does all the time, and we never see it because we don't make it a, a ministry of the church, it's just something that you do in the background. I, one thing I love about this church is that I find out all the time that you guys care for each other 
and do stuff for each other and make sure you're cared for. And it is not a formal ministry of the church run by me. Praise be to God. There's, there's no benevolence fund where the people of the church come and, and say, I have this need, and then the elders decide, eh, that's not really a need to us. And then, you know, or, you know, that's a $20 need, or that's a $100. Wait, no, this church takes care, well, you take care of each other. And I, I love that because that is what we are called to do. That, that's how it's supposed to work. This is your family. And there should not be any needs within the people of God that aren't met by other believers. Not met by the church formally. That's, uh, we gotta, in our culture, we have to kind of reconstruct our thinking sometimes that the church is not an organization. It is, in fact, people. And while you should be able to look to the leadership of the church to help organize that, ultimately the ministry of the church falls to the members of the church. You are um, the ones who do the ministry. It's, it's incredible. It's incredible. Let me just give you a practical example of this. Last night, my um, water heater went out, right? And um, I didn't want to not be able to shower this morning for your sakes. And the thought popped into my mind, if I don't get this thing running, there are 10 people that I could call and go to their house in the morning and get ready for church. That, that is a very small, very practical example. But, but here's what's incredible. My parents live in Eugene, Oregon. Well, they're no help. And Jess and I have no biological family here in town, but here's what we do have. We have you. We have each other. We belong to the family of God. I, I, have, I have more houses. And Jess knows, I, if I, you ever invite us over for dinner, I just make myself at home. It's something that, it's part of me. I will open your refrigerator uh, right when I get there and grab something to drink. The point is, is that when you come into the family of God, you, you, you come into the family of God. Now, persecutions will come as well. Don't miss that, that the blessing of God is almost always woven in with difficulty and trial and struggle. But the reality is that even in the midst of that, we, we have our Father in heaven who loves us and provides for us everything we need, and we have our brothers and sisters around us to walk with us and support one another. There's not one that loses anything, doesn't receive a hundredfold. But that's not even the best news. That's good news. But, but the truth is that a lot of organizations can do that part, I don't think they, I don't believe they can do it with the genuine love that we have for one another because we love each other with the love of Christ. But there are organizations that care for each other. But what we have is, it's even better. End of verse 30. And in the age to come, eternal life. So you might lose a lot of stuff in your life if you follow me for the sake of the gospel, but you're going to gain a lot in this life. And what is more than all of that? Eternal life. Eternal life. That, that means life united with God and, this, and the people of God in the presence of God forever. Tell me, what, what trial, what cost is too great for that there isn't one. 
Remember back in Mark 8, 34. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If anyone try to save his life, his earthly possessions, his earthly life, he'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will find it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Finally, the last point is there in verse 31. But the many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Well, what does that mean? Well, if the first are last and the last are first, it just simply means there is no first or last. That we are all co-heirs of the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't matter your status. It doesn't matter your wealth. It doesn't matter your position within society. When all things are said and done in eternity, co-heirs with Christ. First, last, last, first. It doesn't matter. Cannot buy our salvation. It is the free gift of God, freely given to those who believe and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful news? All right, let's stand together. Let's pray. Lord, we are um, so thankful that our salvation is not something that we must earn for which one of us could pay the price. No, nobody. We're grateful, Lord, that you purchased it on the cross for our sake, that the eternal one, you bore the weight of our sin and you bore the wrath that was intended for us. And in so doing, those of us who have believed in Christ have been united with him. This is really, really, really good news. So Lord, we're, we're grateful for our salvation. I do pray this morning, Lord, for those that have not heard and received, that today you would uh, open up the eyes of their hearts to see the good news of the gospel, that they would cry out to you in, in repentance and in confession. Your word says that if anyone believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth, believes in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and confesses, believes that God raised him from the dead, that they will be saved. So I pray that you do that miracle in people this morning. And for those of us that have received that great salvation, I pray that we would just simply um, be reminded again this morning of what we received and our hearts would be filled with that with gratitude again, Lord. We praise you and we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're going to, um, before we go, we're going to sing together and then partake in communion and then sing one more time.